This is Debbie, and welcome to another brand new episode of The Offbeat Life, where I speak to inspiring individuals who ditched the norm to live their best life and become location independent. This week, I talked to Erin Lowry, who is the author of The Broke Millennial and a finance personal expert. From an early age, Erin was learning a lot of valuable lessons from her parents on understanding the value of a dollar and the work that goes into earning money. She has gone on to graduate college debt-free, has moved to New York City and still saved while making next to nothing, while learning how to invest and developed a skill for negotiation. Today, Erin travels around the country as a speaker and promotes her highly successful book, The Broke Millennial, and continues to help others get their financial life together. On this episode, Erin shares how to spend money on what you value the most and how to get from flat broke to financial badass. Erin shares so much valuable tips on this episode, so make sure you take some notes and enjoy the show. Hey, Erin. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me here in this diner in Astoria. Can you fill in the gaps of your story and why you live an offbeat life? Well, I guess it's offbeat, one, because I'm a freelancer, which as a millennial maybe isn't super special, but I worked uh, regular jobs through the early parts of my career, and then about a year and a half ago, I quit and went full-time freelance, and I'm building my brand called Broke Millennial, and I have one book out, I'm working on two more, and I also run a blog, and do a lot of writing. And my favorite thing too is speaking. So I talk to people about how to get their financial lives together. And that uh, that involves a lot of travel, which is really cool. And um, we were joking earlier before we got on air that uh, I just keep going to Texas. So, I mean, I was born there. It's a great state, but if people could maybe just have events outside of Texas so I could see other parts of the country, that would be wonderful. <laughs> well, it keeps getting you back to where you were born, right? So you're a true Texan as we... <laughs> We talked about before you even left your job, what was it like? Because I know the Broke Millennial was a blog first before it became a hit book. And that's how I found Erin through my cousin, Katrina, who is in love with your book. And it definitely changed the way she thought about financing because a lot of us, especially for millennials, we are really afraid to talk about finances and money. And I don't think it's brought up enough, especially in our household. And I've read your book and your dad was a huge part with how you're able to think about money in general. What has happened for you to leave that nine to five and to fully commit to to being an author and a writer? So there are a bunch of factors at play there. And I think the first thing is that self-employment looks really glamorous on paper. It looks glamorous on Instagram because that's the version that people put out, but it's a lot of hard work and you have to have a really high risk tolerance in order to do it. There's variable income. You don't necessarily know what you're making month to month. Trying to find health insurance is a real pain in the ass, but At the end of the day, you have a lot of control and autonomy. And I think for me, some of the foundations that got laid early on is that I was raised to be very self-sufficient, very independent, which really complements being self-employed, but also my parents taught me very early on how to handle my money. So from the jump, I never have had to deal with debt 
As an 18-year-old, I was in a position where I could make a decision on where to go to college based on coming out debt-free. I got scholarship money, and I gave up going to my dream school in order to, what I say, live my dream life afterwards, because even at 18, I knew I wanted to move to New York City after I graduated, and I knew that if I was... 80 to $100,000 in student loan debt that I wouldn't be able to do what I wanted. I would really be strapped to having to just get that paycheck. So I would say even starting at 18 was where I started kind of my journey along the way of being able to set myself up for self-employment. And my first couple of years living in New York, I first I worked as a page for the Late Show with David Letterman, and then that did not pay a ton of money. So I was also a Starbucks barista as well as a babysitter. So a lot of hustling, a lot of, you know, working... 14, 14 to 20 days on with no breaks and, you know, 12 hour days or 15 hour days, kind of depending. And then after that, I went into public relations for a little bit and we were not a good fit for each other. I'm just too blunt for PR. And after that, I went and worked for a fintech startup. And that's really kind of where everything started happening for me. I had started BrokeMillennial.com back when I worked in PR And I started it because, like you mentioned with your cousin, a lot of millennials just didn't want to talk about money. And I was inspired by a friend of mine. We were out talking, and she had moved to New York to be an actress. And instead, she was working as an executive assistant. And we were, at the time, 23. And I said, I just don't really understand. Like, you don't have student loans. You don't have kids. You're not married. You don't have debt. Like, now seems like the time. You could hustle, 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 do what you need to do and try acting for at least a year. And she goes, I don't know, money just really stresses me out. I just hope I have enough at the end of the month. And that was really my light bulb moment because even when I was only making $23,000 my first year living in New York, I felt in control because I knew how to control my money. I knew how to live within my means and how to budget and how to scrimp and all of that. And I wanted to help other people feel that way. And that's first where the blog started and then the, the talking and the freelance writing and then the book. Going back to when you were growing up with your dad, there is on the first chapter, I believe, with your dad, and he had this lesson for you. Was that one of the most memorable moments that you've had with the life lesson that your dad gave you on money? Or what about when you were a teenager and you have your rebellion side and you question a lot of things? So my parents were very shrewd in how they taught money because it wasn't simply that they taught us through practical examples, which in my book, uh, just briefly, the example that got brought up is I wanted to earn a little money. My parents were not big on handing me anything. And at seven, I didn't have a whole lot of earning opportunities. So I asked my dad if he would buy Krispy Kreme donuts for me that I could sell at my mom's yard sale and then pocket the profits. And at the end, my dad comes over after I've sold out the donuts and said, like, hey, I bought the donuts. So you have to pay me back and your little sister worked for you. So you have to pay her and the remainder is your net profit. And while that's one of the most catchy, I don't even know that it is the most memorable. There have been a lot of moments. Um, One of my other favorites that I've never really written about before is I think I was nine. I was turning nine. You remember that bubble tape gum? It was like super cool. So my parents' policy was if I asked for anything in a store, they would say, will you pay 50%? And if I would, then great, I could have it. And if I wouldn't, it was kind of teaching me about impulse purchases early on. And we were in the checkout line at Media Play, which is a pretty much now defunct store. And I saw bubble tape. And I said to my dad, like, hey, can I have that? And he, go, and he didn't say, will you pay 50%? And I knew something was up because he didn't say that. <laughs> 
and I got home and it was a surprise party for my birthday. <laughs> so that is one of my most memorable moments that him not engaging with the whole like 50% rule tipped me off that something else was going on and it turned out to be a surprise party. And then, you know, in terms of being a rebellious teenager, I actually was pretty chill. I never went through a super rebellious stage. What my parents really were doing, though, was modeling the idea of spending on what you value. And we, I was an expat for a good chunk of my childhood, so I moved overseas at 10. And from then on, from 10 to 18, when I came back to America, my parents were still living overseas with my little sister. We traveled. That's where we spent money. And we didn't have the most lavish apartment. We didn't have the most lavish stuff. My parents didn't wear super fancy clothes or jewelry or anything like that, tech toys, any of it. Even the couch that we had was like predated my birth. <laughs> and But when we traveled, we traveled well. We traveled nice. And I think that that, to me, was a very important lesson early on is that you, you spend on what you value and everything else doesn't matter as much in terms of you don't need to keep up. Just put your money in what's important to you. And they modeled that behavior in, as opposed to just telling me what to do. And I very much carried that over into my adult life. It's also interesting to realize, even not just with finances, but with everything else in our life, it's better to show people what to do and rather than actually telling them. And it's even more interesting to me the dynamic that you have with your parents, especially your dad and how he's been teaching you on finance since you were a little girl because I, I work with children and you're going to get married soon and you want a family as well and how you're going to do the conversation with your children and what's going to happen after that. So I can't even imagine what your son or daughter is going <laughs> to it's going to be like, so when you want to do something, you have a goal or a dream that you want to reach, what are usually the first steps that you do in order to achieve them? The first step is making a goal actionable. And by that, I mean breaking it down into small chunks. It's great if you say, hey, I want to write a book, but then you need to be deciding what it takes to put yourself in a position to write one. And as a little kid, I actually had a dream to be a writer. I never thought it was going to be writing about money. I thought I was going to be, you know, the next J.K. Rowling or whatever. But once I realized that this was an actual opportunity, it really was about making those smart, actionable, breaking it down into small chunk steps. The way I relate it to money is that when I went to college, as I mentioned before, I knew I wanted to move to New York City. And for some reason, as an 18-year-old, I got it in my head that like $10,000 was the money that it would take to move to New York. I could not tell you where that amount came from, but I decided as a freshman, I want to have $10,000 saved by the time I leave and go to New York so that I can, so I can, you know, have down payment or not down payment, but deposit on an apartment and, you know, maybe job search, whatever it takes. So I broke that down. I was like, okay, then I need to earn $2,500 per year for the next four years to have 10 grand. Okay, now I have to figure out how to get a job. Great, resident advisor. That seems like an easy job to do. So I was a nerdy RA for three of my four years of college, and I worked during the summers and pocketed and saved a lot of my money so that I could have $10,000. But I made it actionable because 10 grand at 18 sounds like so much money, but breaking it down to say 2,500 a year and then even breaking it down to being per month, that felt attainable. It can get really daunting to see the big numbers, but like you said, when you break it down to little things, it's so much more doable. Even as adults, 10 grand is a lot, right? I can't even imagine as an 18-year-old and you're like, eh, now I can move to New York City. <laughs> You are really busy. You've been traveling a lot because of this incredible book that you've written. And you obviously have been changing a lot of people's lives, like my cousin and I, for example. 
What does your average day usually look like? Ooh, average day. Mm, I want to say something cliche like no day is average. <laughs> but it's still me waking up. I do exactly what you're not supposed to do and check all of my social media accounts and my email when I'm still laying in bed. So I'm addicted to my cell phone. I own a dog. His name is Mosby. He's the best. He needs to go for a walk, which also, if you're going to be self-employed, have a dog because it forces you to go outside. And it's great companionship when you're alone in your house and you can talk to something. (laughs) Definitely recommend that. But honestly, it kind of depends on just where I am in a project. So right now I'm working on my second book. So most of my days is me trying to keep myself off of social media and stop checking my email so I can focus on writing. But I'm pretty much a one-man shop at the moment. I don't have a huge support staff in terms of a team, which is shame on me, to be honest. So it's me handling a lot of, you know, emails, correspondence, vetting potential speaking gigs and negotiations for stuff like that. Um, So it's handling a lot of the boring administrative side of running a business and then also having to create the content and be active on social and build the brand. And then I also get, you know, press opportunities like we're doing right now. And after this podcast, I've got two interviews I have to go do. And then um, this evening I do a a YouTube series with uh, the the women from the financial diet. So on Thursdays, I have a YouTube show called The The Three-Minute Guide that lives on the financial diet YouTube channel. So I've got to pop over to Harlem and film three of those episodes later today. So, you know, that's it today. Yesterday, it was mostly me in my sweatpants all day writing. So it just really depends day to day. And then, um, yeah, a lot of travel too. Next weekend, I got to fly down to Austin to speak on a panel at South by Southwest. So, yeah, back to Texas. So, yeah, it really just depends. There's not one typical day, but usually I'm not showering until I'm forced to leave the house. That is a common threat. That's usually the biggest problem that we have when we're working from home because we're either in a really comfy robe or it's hard to to get out of bed. (laughs) You have done a lot already and you've written this book and I'm sure there was a lot of fears and anxiety. What has been the biggest setback that you've encountered and how do you usually handle them? Imposter syndrome is real, for sure. I think for me, when I got the book deal, it happened very quickly. Everything felt too easy. And I think that mostly felt that way because there's such a narrative that exists where you're supposed to struggle for big achievements like that. And I remember getting news from my editor that confirmed we've got the deal, we're moving forward with a publisher. And I remember calling my parents and especially saying to my dad, you know, it took Tim Ferriss 26 different publishers to get a book deal. And my dad said, okay, but you've been putting, you know, sweat equity into Broke Millennial for three years at this point. And that was, you know, two years ago. And that kind of put it in perspective. And then I realized, oh, I have to write a book. And I was a little paralyzed with fear for a while because I felt like, one, what gives me the right? Will people like it? I was very nervous about the reception because it's a very specific style. I am very narrative. I tried to cover a lot of topics all in one book, and I just wasn't sure how it would be received. It's been received very well, but that didn't prevent me from having the same spiral while doing my next book, which is on investing. And now I feel like, oh, what gives me the right? Why should I be getting to do this? And... I can't, there's no one prescriptive way to deal with it. I think being open and talking about it is helpful. I also am part of different mastermind groups. So it's people who work in similar fields who we can all bat around ideas and support each other and hold each other accountable as well. And that's very helpful. And if you're going to be self-employed at any point or have some sort of side hustle or pursue some sort of dream, 
have some people in your corner that's not just your friends and family, but also people who do something similar, who you can bounce ideas off of, because they understand it in a different way that's very helpful. It's so important to have that type of support, because even though our family and our friends love us, it can get really daunting and isolating when no one else in your circle does this. So having people who know exactly your struggle, they either have been through it or going through it or about to, is so much help just for your overall health, honestly, because the stress is not so bad when you know someone else is struggling the same way as you are. You have talked to a lot of people. You've done a lot of speaking engagements. You've done a lot of interviews like this. What has been the biggest or the worst advice you have ever gotten? (laughs) I don't even know that it would be financial so much as people who would caution me against pursuing something that was outside the box. And this wasn't so much advice as just somebody having a lack of faith. I wrote about it once that I was on a ski lift in college. Um, There was ski slopes near where I went to college, and I was on a lift with some stranger. And he goes, oh, what do you do? And I'm like, oh, I'm going to college. He's like, what's your major? I said, journalism and theater, double major. And he goes, what are you going to do with that? And I think if you listen to those kind of naysayers enough, and trust me, I've had plenty of people throughout my life who are like, what are you going to do with a theater degree? What are you going to do with a journalism degree? You're not going to make any money. You don't know how things will turn out, for one. And two, I now write professionally and do speaking engagements. Talk about a perfect marriage of journalism and theater. At the time, if you had told me this is what I would have been doing 10 years ago when I started college, I would have laughed in your face. But it does make sense. And both of those gave me the foundations that I needed to do what I do today. And I say that also with the caveat of pursuing your dreams is important, but you can also overinvest in yourself. So be practical, be tactful have a goal, like a very specific goal in mind, like we talked about earlier, and then have people who can hold you accountable to those. Because we can get to a point where we're so, we have so many sunk costs, we've put so much in that we're afraid to give it up. And sometimes you do have to give it up or you have to pivot. It's important to understand where your limits are, or sometimes it's not really a limit, more like where you should pivot. I mean, it may be what you really want to do, but sometimes it'll lead you to a different direction that you may not have thought, like you now as an author, as a speaker. So it's definitely led you to to this beautiful journey that you're in now. We've talked about you working from home. (laughs) I do that part of the week too. Do you have any productivity tip that has worked for you really well? One thing I started doing this year in 2018, I I created what I called micro goals. So there were big overarching goals for the year I had in a couple different buckets. It was like health, building wealth, my job or my career, my personal relationships. I had a bunch of different goals. And then each month I will set new micro goals. So it's small, actionable things I can do to make those big overarching goals a reality. And I put it on a sticky note and it's on a mirror. So every single morning I see it. So that's one. And the other thing is I write a to-do list about what I need to do the next day, the night before, and then it's prioritized based on what actually needs to get done first. It is not a flawless system. There are still mornings that I wake up and I feel so stressed about all the things that need to do. I just feel paralyzed there for a minute and either just want to have a good stress cry or go back to sleep or whatever it is. So it is not perfect, but... 
having an actionable item or having an actionable list of what you need to do that day that got written the night before is helpful and stay off your email in the morning and do the first couple things on your to-do list before you check your email. I promise it'll be fine. The world will not implode if the first thing, and I already said earlier that the, one of the first things I do is check social in my email, but my days are much more productive on days that I do not do those things. How were you able to finance this chosen career that you have when you first started and how are you able to finance it now? I keep things very lean in terms of costs. When I worked in that fintech startup, I was exposed to a model of keeping it tight and lean and not spending any extra money as opposed to, I think a lot of times we think startups and they just take all their investor money and pour it into the snacks and the drinks and the happy hours. And this was not the kind of startup I worked for. So I kind of took that model and applied it. And I do a lot of things myself where I'm at the point that I need to learn how to outsource better, but it kept things tight in the beginning that enabled me to keep going. But more importantly, I saved a ton of money through both my day job and I was side hustling. I've never just worked one job. So I saved so much money in the beginning that I got to a point where my saving, my emergency savings was so healthy that I knew I could take the risk. And everybody's risk is going to be different. But I had enough money outside of investments that if I didn't earn a penny for a year, I could meet my base needs. I couldn't live a same lifestyle, but I could meet my needs. And that to me was enough to quit my job and take the risk. And there are ebbs and flows. There are some months that it's great and there are some months where I just want to curl up in the fetal position and cry and so what I do now is you know when those months are great and flushed with cash then I, it's still a lot of saving a lot of putting money away preparing for what can be down months and because I go through periods of writing books there are times where I have to pull back on earning money because I need to be focused on the book writing and that doesn't necessarily like yes I get an advance but it's not huge and it gets paid out in three installments so it's more just about figuring out a budgeting style too that works for you with having this variable income and you you have to find it for yourself I can't prescriptively tell you one way is the best zero-sum budget does tend to work best for freelancers though so you can look up what that is if you're not familiar great tips Erin thank you so much for that you found what you were meant to do right? you're this amazing writer and you used to be a blogger and it just blended together so perfectly what about for someone who's really trying to find themselves and they're so confused either that or they know what they want but they're so afraid to take that next step what advice would you give to someone it's easier if you know what you want Obviously, I would say see if you can test it on the side first. If it's some sort of business idea that you have, test it while you are safely working a steady paying job and see if you can build it into a little bit of a side business before you take the leap. I also think that we have this almost dangerous notion that exists that you need to love the job that you do. Sometimes people just want to work a job to make money and then pursue hobbies outside of it. And let me tell you, as soon as you monetize your hobby, it's a job and it's not quite as fun as it used to be. And Broke Millennial, the blog, used to be a release. It's not a release anymore. It's a job. I have to do it to pay the bills at this point. So now I have to have other hobbies. And I'm careful not to monetize those because you need some stuff that's just for fun. And not everything needs to be about earning and making money. But if your goal is, in terms of your lifestyle design, is you want to have a career that you love, not just a career that pays the bills until you have enough money to retire, because those are two very different lifestyle philosophies, then dabble. Think about what you do enjoy and what are kind of the intersections of those various things that you enjoy and 
there are so many resources out there through blogs and YouTube videos and podcasts and just consume as much information as you can and try to synthesize and how this is going to actually translate to your personal life. Erin, let's look uh, ahead 50 years from now and you're looking back in your life. What do you want to be remembered for and what do you want your legacy to be? So it's 78. (laughs) This is actually going to be a very morbid point, but I will say when my book came out, I had a thought the night before the book release that I was like, you know what? If I get hit by a bus tomorrow... It's okay because I've put something into the world that I'm proud of. And as much as I don't want to die young, um, there is something to be said about feeling like you've contributed. And when I got the first email from someone telling me that the book had helped them and they were very specific about how, that just, that was why I wrote it. It wasn't about making a ton of money. I books notoriously don't make you a ton of money. I knew going in, but putting something in the world that was going to help people... So I guess I hope that I have continued to build Broke Millennial, and maybe it will pivot, and maybe it will get renamed, but that I've put something out there that really genuinely does help and has alleviated some of this financial burden that millennials experience, so maybe Gen Z or the next generation afterwards didn't have it quite as tough. And you've already started, and you already have done a lot of that, so I'm sure it's just going to keep going. So let's get to some fun questions, Erin. Some people like myself, I nerd out on interviewing people like you who are really inspirational and hiking, and I'm really bad with cheesy um, coming-of-age movies. <laughs> what about you? What do you nerd out on? I love television so much. If you've ever seen 30 Rock, I am Kenneth. When he talks about, I just love TV, that's me. It is my release. I actually one time thought about wanting to be a TV critic professionally, and then back to my point of don't monetize what you love. I was like, can't do it. I just, I need to love it for the love of watching it. And I do, I still do read a lot, but, oh man, I can't tell you why I love TV. And I don't even love movies in the same way. I just love television so much. And I am not even highbrow about it. I watch all sorts of trashy things all the way up to much more of the New Yorker would review it type stuff. So I'm just all over the map on that. And then traveling for fun is definitely one of my biggest releases, but I travel a lot for work now. So I do try to keep the sanctity of traveling for fun. And one of my interesting vices is that I will not work in an airplane. If I'm traveling, that is just like alone time. People can't text me. I can't get reached. I can just watch something or read something or sleep, but that's kind of my special alone time. Until you start getting recognized, Erin, and then you can't stop the fans. (laughs) Actually, my, my secret dream is to see someone reading Broke Millennial in the Wild, and I was super jealous. Two people I know in New York have seen people reading Broke Millennial on the subway, and I still haven't gotten to see that yet. So that is my big goal is to see either in an airport or on the subway or wherever somebody reading my book. And I haven't decided if I'm going to go up and be like, that's me. Because the headshot that's in it, I feel like I look enough like it, but, you know, makeup, airbrush, hair did. So if I'm in, like, my sweats with my ponytail, they'll be like, okay. <laughs> well, we'll see. She get a gang of people just to do that. I'd be like, let's let's get Erin to see you reading their book. Yeah. 
<laughs> if you were given a one-minute ad slot on the Super Bowl and you can't sell that <laughs> with the potential to reach millions, what would you fill it with? This is a tough one. First, I would have my sister write and direct it because she works in film. So I'd hire her for that. Um, I have a lot of various causes that I feel strongly about. And I guess I would have to figure out which at that time needed to be addressed the most. And it could be I am very much an adopt-don't-shop-when-it-comes-to-animals person. So I could go down that rabbit hole very much about women's rights, could go down that rabbit hole, could be about finance, or it just might be something really that just makes people think, also Super Bowl ads are supposed to be funny, so trying to address those <laughs> topics and it not be funny could really be a hit and miss. I'm going to actually steal Tim Ferriss, though. I love his you are a combination of the five people with whom you spend the most time line. I think that that's very thought-provoking, and if he even mentions that it's not just who you are around in person. It can be the podcast you're listening to, the books you read, the TV shows you're watching. And let me tell you, when you hear someone say that and you realize how much Real Housewives you watch, it makes you think. <laughs> so that is something that's very important is who are you surrounding yourself with, both in the media you consume and in real life, and are they making you a better person? I've actually been really conscious about that, especially the last few years, is that... I don't have a lot of time anymore, especially with my job and the podcast and the people that I hang out with even weekly are the people that are really important to me and not necessarily people that I've known forever, just people that I know that are really valuable for my time as well. So that I love that quote also by Tim Ferriss and I tell myself that in the head all the time when I'm watching the really bad shows. <laughs> What is the most unusual job that you've ever had? And what has been the best thing that you've learned from it? I've done a lot of side hustling living in New York. And I'm trying to think what would have been the weirdest. But I think one of my favorites was from when I was a kid. My sister and I actually started a little pet sitting empire. <laughs> and what happened was the first year that we lived in Japan... Typically, expats would all go back to their home countries during the summer months, but we didn't move to Japan until February, and my parents were afraid that if they took us back to America that soon after, that it would be like us having to go all the way back through the process of like getting, like adapting back to the States for three months and then grieving it again coming back to Japan. So instead, they're like, screw that. We're just going to stay in Japan for a year and a half before you ever go back to America again for the first time. So I, from February of 2000, didn't go back to America until June of 2001, which was a long stretch. So anyway, we're staying home in home being Japan that whole summer and a lot of expats are leaving so I get the genius idea to start asking them if they need people to walk their dogs and watch their cats and we made like a thousand dollars each as I was 11 and my sister was eight oh <laughs> that summer and it was really interesting too because you know it's really fun for like the first two weeks and then it is not fun anymore. And my parents were like, oh no, you signed up for this. We are not handling this for you. There was a, one family who had a cat named Gorbachev, which was a white cat with a purple birthmark over its eye. <laughs> and I just remember them being like, you have to go clean out Gorby's kitty litter and you have to go feed Gorby. We are not doing that for you. So... That was definitely one of my biggest learning lessons, which we started this wacky pet empire, but then also learning about having to follow through if you sign yourself up for something and developing that work ethic early on. That is so interesting to, to hear that about 
you starting these businesses first the Krispy Kreme donut and now the pet sitting oh actually I have another one this is my dad's favorite money story about me to tell. So I had already had the Krispy Kreme donut experience and I had made like 15, 20 bucks. And you know, early hours in North Carolina summer morning, working for like three hours to get all these donuts sold. Didn't make a ton of money. It's a lot to you when you're seven. So then about six months later, my mom actually had us, us being me and my little sister, in um, like modeling and acting as kids. And so I did a commercial for a regional power plant in North Carolina and the commercial was me and two kids splashing around in the pond or it wasn't a pond it was a lake like we're in inner tubes splashing around for about an hour they got their footage yeah. and I got paid something like two grand for this work and so when I got the check a check didn't mean anything to me because I was only ever used to cash and tangible currency so my dad was trying to figure out a way to make it mean something to me so he took me to TCBY because I love ice cream loved and still love ice cream and he goes okay with that money that you made from the Krispy Kreme donuts that was you working for hours in the hot summer morning and you had to do all that work you could maybe buy five ice cream cones but with this check for the work that you did for an hour getting to swim in the lake you could buy all of the ice cream in here he goes so you want to be the person that is doing the jobs that gets you the checks for two thousand dollars for an hour of work <laughs> like he was trying to codify this idea of how you can do less for more and not saying that you should have less of a work ethic but that there's ways that the system works that you're not quite computing yet as an eight-year-old and that was a very interesting moment we're like oh got it world doesn't work the way I thought (laughs) your dad is so interesting it would be great to see you guys do a talk next to each other (laughs) and like you did (laughs) that's that would be so interesting what are you working on today Erin that is really exciting to you? Well, I'm trying to get this next book done. And this year is a a big year. I've got two books that I have to write and I'm getting married. So a lot's happening this year. And I am playing around with the idea of creating a course that I can't say a whole lot more about than that right now. And then I will also say doing the YouTube videos have been really fun because it's just a different creative outlet. The topic is three-minute guides, so trying to get information and all the information somebody needs on a topic in three minutes is an interesting challenge that's been a lot of fun as well. And you get very interactive real-time comments on YouTube. So that has been a a whole different set of experiences as well. I love that. It's so nerve-wracking, but also exciting at the same time. If our listeners want to know more about you, where can they find you? I am very active on Twitter at Broke Millennial. I also am on Instagram at Broke Millennial Blog, and you can go to BrokeMillennial.com or email me. If you just go to the website, there's a big contact me form, and that'll come straight to me as well. Thank you so much, Erin, for coming here in this diner with me and eating pancakes and French toast. (laughs) It was so much fun. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Erin. Make sure to visit theoffbeatlife.com. Again, that's theoffbeatlife.com to get the extended interview with Erin to find out how to travel and enjoy life without breaking the bank.